Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. Okay, Mr. Tim, as uh, often is the case, I have a question for you. (laughs) All right, shoot, go ahead. Okay, so you recently started a new job, right? You're working for a large organization with the intent of bringing behavioral science insights to bear on the organization. Is that correct? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Okay. Well, that probably works. less than <laughs> I said it, but yeah. Okay. But, but I was interested in seeing, um, about if you're concerned at all about the scalability of the interventions that you are being brought in on. Oh, yeah. To- uh, totally. That's, that is absolutely an issue because one of the things that I continue to see is this wonderfully horizontal aspect of, behavioral science that can be applied anywhere in the organization. The principles are universal, right? So it's anytime we get people involved, there's this broad horizontality about it. And at the same time, the tools get applied in highly contextual situations, Mm. right, that are not scalable. You know, I I, I spent this morning working on emails. Okay. uh, Just to like to work on email copy, you know, in the review panel for what is going to be the best and most successful way to frame an email. So, yeah, it's 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 a challenge. It's a big challenge for me. Yeah. And I think that's a common it's a common problem across many organizations, both for profit ones, nonprofits and and governmental as well. Absolutely. And our guest today, I think, is really at the forefront of this because she's exploring this to help identify and to understand how to ensure that behavioral science interventions are effective at scale. Oh, she is definitely doing that, Kurt. Uh, Neela Saldana leads the Yale Research Initiative on Innovation and Scale. It's called Y-Rise, the letter Y-Rise. And Y-Rise is focused on developing the science around scaling policy interventions. And as she says, and, and I quote, I am a behavioral scientist by training and advise organizations on behavioral change, advocate for charitable giving, examine ideas around dignity, and try and fail to deliver credible rendition of Bach 875. Mm-hmm. Gotta love that. That's, I, I that's knew you were excited about that last part. You know, I knew that. <laughs> yeah. Of course I was excited about that. <laughs> well, we talked to Neela about the issues that companies and organizations have in taking initiatives to scale and some of the common roadblocks that behavioral scientists encounter. Yeah, so her work sheds light on what we can do to improve the chances of success and what behavioral scientists, as well as anybody who's trying to lead change in an organization, what they can do to drive success. Yeah, and it's important to know that this isn't just for behavioral scientists. No, uh, that is very true. So everybody who's listening, please sit back and enjoy the small intervention brew as we talk about how to scale that to your raging party of the year and enjoy our conversation with Neela Saldana. Neela Saldana, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to have you. We really have been looking forward to this for a long time after all of our reschedules. <laughs> a very long time. It's been fun. So we're going to get started with a speed round. We'd like to just start with something simple. Coffee. Do you prefer homemade or Starbucks? Homemade. Homemade. All right. 
If you had to travel for a vacation, would you travel with a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Somewhere in between. Okay, so there you go. Well, right? well, tell us about that. We have many people when we ask them this question, they're always like, "Well, I need to have that hotel set up when I get there, but like the days in between, I can have some variability." Is that kind of where That's you are? That's exactly it. I like to know um, where I'm going to stay. I don't think I could deal with that much uncertainty, yeah. and maybe some idea of a few things. But then once I get there, I get very oppressed by the thought of uh, uh, we have to do this today and this tomorrow and this. Uh, and, and I think it's Ashley Willens, and she has a nice um, point where she says some people are events based, you know, calendar people, and some people are, I think, the other kind, like hourly based. So someone will yep. say we'll meet on Saturday morning-ish, and someone will say <laughs> we meet at 10.30 on Saturday morning. I am definitely the former. Uh, you know, okay. we, we kind of we meet, yeah, Sunday evening-ish sounds good to have this discussion. Um, as you can tell when I even logged on to this one <laughs> a little late. Yes, it's on Friday morning-ish. So, yeah. That's yeah, that's that's uh, you and me are of the same <laughs> ilk there. I, I would love to have my life, but you know the the world doesn't always exactly. appreciate the eight uh, thirty ish kind of start times, the Saturday morning ish somewhere in there. They go, no, we need to know exactly, exactly. when. So yeah, okay, that's good. Okay, so which is a better piece of music to listen to when you're just getting your day started? Uh, a Bach fugue or a Beethoven symphony? Ah, uh, Beethoven Symphony, all of that noise and that challenge, <laughs> especially like the first and third movements. I mean, you know, the second movement is one of those calming. Like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. You don't want to start the your day. Take the afternoon nap. Let's take the afternoon nap during that. <laughs> uh, can, I just, can I just follow that up with uh, any, any favorite symphonies from Beethoven? Of course, the ninth. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, I don't, um, I, I'm not, a, I would say I'm a middle-brow classical music listener, right? So I don't really <laughs> always love every part of a symphony. Okay. That's the one that I listen to all the four, sec- like all the sections, and each one is as brilliant as the other one. Mostly I'm like, ah, uh, you could have cut this out. Mostly he that. Wow. <laughs> wow. But, but that one, yeah. So absolutely the ninth. I well, would say. we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna have to have a discussion about that because I'm gonna try to persuade you that the sixth symphony is really where it's at. And I love all that rain coming down. You know the the thing in the end, but I'm kind of like, hmm, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then one section of the oboe playing solo in the fifth is yes. like by far my favorite like half a minute of music and I always yeah. I'm like if I'm listening to to it live I'm like please don't cough during yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> only 20 seconds just hold it right. there's something about that single note oh yeah, oh, yeah the oboe absolutely nails it yeah that's that's the star of that the, the fifth symphony absolutely but we're coming back we're going to talk okay, we're going to have okay. to have that you, you get your you get your music chance oh, at the end alrighty. Tim, you know hang on hang on alright All right. okay Neela which side of you is happier today, the accountant side or the writer side? Um, I think the writer side. We're doing this podcast, okay. right? <laughs> it is. It's kind of so your, my accountant your... side was very like I need to be prepared and what paper should I read and oh my goodness they're going to ask me about this and I won't be able to cite this. So that was a little bit of that. But I'm going to go a little wild here and say writer side, like <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Well, good. We hope that we bring that writer side out because that's really what we're trying to do here. And and so, um, for those of you, uh, we've been following you for years uh, on social media as well as some of the other work that you've been doing. But for those of you who uh, of our listeners who might not know about you, we gave an intro in the beginning. But but can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing right now and maybe just that brief history of of kind of how you got to, to Y-Rise. Yeah. Great. So, yes, I am the executive director of Y-Rise, which is the Yale Research Initiative on Innovation and Scale. Um, and as you can tell, it deals a lot with sort of researching scaling of interventions, of specifically of interventions in policy and development. And the reason for that is the faculty director is Mushfiq Mubarak. And, uh, you know, he's done some great mm. studies on migration. Uh, can you stimulate migration? Um, and found that, you know, in pilot studies, these things work really well. The little experiments we do, the randomized control trials that we do. But as you scale up an intervention, lots of factors come into play. And I'll just give you one simple one. So in development, you do run an intervention, very small scale. You know, people are great, NGOs running it, that's great. Now imagine like taking a migration intervention and really scaling it to 2 million people, right? There's going to be political economy consequences of doing that. Suddenly people who, the, the, the political actors who weren't interested in this tiny little, you know, intervention with 200 people are going to be very interested uh, with what's happening when people migrate large scale. So the the world, the development world, I mean, thanks to all the amazing work by, you know, um, Michael Kremer and Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, and the ilk have done a lot in terms of innovation, uh, in terms of randomized control trials and impact evaluation. So you have JPAL and IPA, SIGA, et cetera. And then we just assume that those pilot results will hold and we try and scale those, right? And at most, we might think of a few implementation issues. So Wireless actually fills that gap in terms of thinking about the complexities of scaling interventions. How I got here is interesting because I was involved in this huge, during COVID, uh, a trial, a randomized control trial with, uh, you know, it was pretty huge, 600,000 people in Bangladesh to figure out if uh, masks could actually, uh, you know, decrease community spread of COVID. This was right before the vaccines, right? And, um and, and one of the interesting things there was that you can't force people to wear masks. It's a classic behavioral challenge. So you have to improve the update by doing various things. And, uh, you know, the, the researchers, I was not on the research side. I was more on the policy and outreach side of the project. But the researchers did a really good job in terms of looking actually at a lot of behavior science interventions, access, uh, you know, celebrity, like the local uh, mosque leader telling people, and figuring out what works to drive uptake up. And then that actually did have an impact on community uh, COVID. So, you know, for me, the impact is I still wear a mask, you know, today. (laughs) But um, I I was working with that team, and that's how the lead researcher, one of the lead researchers, which is Mushvik, then offered me the job to lead lead Y-Rise, because I think we saw the importance of outreach and policy. It's not enough to do good work. I think if you want to have good work actually get embedded in organizations, you have to talk about it. You have to figure out how to implement it further. And I think, you know, that's the value of academics working with 
what I call pracademics like me, which is <laughs> got some idea of what they're talking about. I don't want to read, you know, page three of their of the paper which talks about the model. I just want to get straight to but but I'm interested in translating evidence into action. And so I think that's that's where I am right now. I love that. And you know, we've had this discussion. I I'd like to kind of focus on uh this this idea of scaling. Because we've we've had discussions with people like David Yoakum, who has been working in you know he's at the Brown Institute, uh, Brown University Institute right now for governmental affairs, um, working on scaling issues that coming out of the Obama White House and 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 saying you know it's really hard to scale interventions because context is such an important part of it. And then on the other hand, we've had, you know, guests like John List who are all about let's figure let's let's just eliminate all those ideas that just don't scale and let's just go for the ones that that actually can. So tell us a little bit about why rise and about the kind of work that you're doing to try to understand what those interventions are that can scale and then how you overcome the challenges of things like context to to in, in order to get them to scale. Right. So I, I do want to make a pitch for John's book, The Voltage Effect. I think it's absolutely fabulous and gives some really good lessons into what scales. And uh, I think what we're doing is, first of all, we're in the, the policy, the development world, right? And there is the private sector scaling. But, you know, having spent many years in the private sector and now in the development world, it's completely different uh, world altogether. Uh, the private sector is much more constrained in that uh, constrained in a good way. I think there are, you know, there are there are metrics, there are ways to do it. There's a system in the public sector, as I said. You know, you you start to scale something. There are all sorts of unintended consequences. Uh, there are political risks. Something that works at a small scale doesn't necessarily work at a large scale. So I'll give you an example. We're currently working on a project around how to, you know, what works to improve entrepreneurs, very, very small entrepreneurs. We're talking about people with one or two employees, which you typically find a lot in, um, you know, in a lot of countries outside of maybe the, the U.S. and and the global north. Um, what works to improve um, these entrepreneurs' productivity, you know, mm. expand their business and so on, because that would get them out of poverty. And, uh, and, you know, you might think about all the complexities. So there are lots of programs that have been tried with good results, right? Do you train them on business skills? Do you train them on sort of, you know, just getting more visionary about their business? Do you train them on soft skills? Do you train them on like P&L? What is it that you need to train them on? There's lots of, there is evidence around what works, uh, but you can start to think about the complexities of scaling this once you take a program from a thousand individuals to, you know, a million. First of all, there are costs involved, right? At yeah. small scale, training one-on-one is, is good. At large scale, that might not work. And so you'd be tempted to say, well, let's just move digital. You know, let's, let's stop doing the, right. the, but, but you might lose fidelity of what John List calls voltage, right? When you, yeah. um, from that. So that's one complexity. But then imagine others. For example, you might find there are, and you know, I should sort of preface this by saying I'm, I'm learning a lot of this, relearning a lot of this work. My undergrad was in economics, but clearly trying to get back to it after a bit. Um, <laughs> so there are all these, these what you'd call general equilibrium effects, right? If everyone is trained, you know, do you then lose? So you typically in a pilot study, you say control treatment, you say these people got the treatment, they got trained, they did much better. 
But now imagine where the entire sort of the, the sea level has moved up for everyone. All everyone is trained now. There's a new average. Do those results still hold? Uh, you know, once everyone has reached a certain level, that difference might just tend to. So what was good in a pilot stage may not show those results at a scale stage. You've just reached a new average. Or what I was talking about earlier, maybe these entrepreneurs get trained and then they get so well trained that they now know what their rights are. They know how to advocate. They start to become, you know, not very, uh, not as pliable as they were. So they start to become an active political constituent. And, you know, would that have some unintended consequences? So you've got to think about those. One thing we do say and people, you know, say, well, does that mean we have to like do all the research before we scale? We really can't afford that, right? Especially given global poverty challenges. We say, no, actually, um, what we're trying to do is as you're scaling to identify some of these complexities and uh, so that we can learn and iterate and design better. And uh, the only other thing I'll say is that it's not as simple as it sounds, um, when I joined White Eyes, I was like, It's yeah, not simple should, at all. I don't think it even sounds just, simple. We should just do the research. I mean, yeah, get, just get a bunch of researchers and do the research and, like, we should know this tomorrow. The problem is that I think if you get people with different methodological, you have to get some econometricians in to say, we've seen 20 studies. Will this apply to the 21st study? What can we tell you about the effects of that? You have to get in the political economy, people who say, wait a minute, I know a little bit about incentives and political actors. So I can tell you, you have to get, you know, the, the folks who do the actual fieldwork. And you might have to get in, you know, from an economic standpoint, the macroeconomists to say, what's the long run effect on the economy? Can we model that? So um, and then you get in the public health folks if you're doing a health intervention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it gets complicated. You don't want it to become so unwieldy that, you know, you're spending time researching something for 15 years and then you don't have an output. So it's we're we in the process of figuring that out and doing that. But I think there's a lot of scope to think about to really think more systematically about complexities of scaling. So we're looking at, you know, workforce development, migration. Uh, to avoid what you call seasonal poverty in many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. There is this particular um, element of poverty between, ha- you know, between planting and harvesting. Interestingly, there are jobs, you know, temporary jobs, construction workers, whatever, in nearby cities. People don't migrate there, but it turns out, and this is, uh, you know, Mushfik's work, that if you do give them a bus ticket, like $10, $10-$11, a round-trip bus ticket and a couple of meals, they migrate and they find work in the neighboring city. And what's interesting is that their families back home get the equivalent of one extra meal, like 600 calories per person because of that increased income. Wow. And all it took was like that, that bus ticket, right? The, the, the short term bus ticket to get them uh, to allow them yeah, to go wow. that. Yeah. Because. An economist will say, well, if it's such a huge return, why wouldn't they have just saved up a little bit or taken a loan and done this, right? I mean, why would you just not, if you can calculate that? I think the problem for people who live in sort of extreme poverty is that one small slip is kind of fatal in some sense. Mm -hmm. So they just wouldn't take that risk at all. And what they find is actually once they do that, the next year, even without those subsidies and without that ticket, they're migrating because now they've learned that if I go, I'll do it. But how am I going to take that first step? So, you know, we're looking at that. Can you scale that? 
uh, it's great if 100 people migrate from a village. What happens when the entire village empties out? And actually, does that, have, <laughs> yeah. does that have effects on people staying back, right? Do they, does it have like, you know, welfare effects on those who stay back? If now this becomes a way to earn your living, like just be out of the house for six months in the year. So, um, so yeah, migration, workforce uh, development, public health, interventions in public health. And uh, a, a lot of other mental health has become a big issue now. Um, so are there interventions to improve those at scale? So lots of exciting work. Yeah. We talked before we started recording and you were talking about this idea of bringing behavioral science into the wild, what we we're just talking about here. And, and some of the, as you said, you know, it's not it seems like it should be easy. We do a, a pilot study. It works there. And you should just be able to translate that. And obviously, we've just talked about a whole bunch of reasons why that isn't true. But we also talked about the idea of behavioral science applying its own tools on behavioral science. And so uh, can you talk a little bit about some of your thoughts on that? Because, again, I think, as you were mentioning, that the number of, of interventions that we do as we're kind of that actually get put into into motion is pretty dismal when we think so about I it. I love this recent working paper I read um, by Kim and Elizabeth Linos and Stefano de la Vigna, which they actually took 73 RCTs by the Behavioral Insights team and saw how many of those were then working with local governments in North America. So this is as, quote unquote, clean of an environment to do the study. I mean, they could actually track all of those 73 RCTs, by the way. So there was to see how many had been adopted. And they found that about 27 percent had been adopted. So like less than a third. And you're talking about, you know, RCTs run well by the Behavioral Insights team, you know, with city governments. So what was really interesting, of course, you know, the, so first of all, the adoption rate being that low, I mean, that's something as behavior yeah. scientists is definitely an outcome for us to sort of improve, right? Uh, <laughs> we talk about, oh, we want to, you know, increase tax or, or uh, tax compliance and we want to do this, but what about increasing, you know, just adoption of RCTs into practice? But what they found really interesting, what I thought was really interesting was that it wasn't the strength of evidence, uh, interestingly enough, that sort of predicted that. So it's not that, and this is our system two kind of mind. Oh, if the evidence is great, people will adopt it. That actually was not the case. <laughs> of course. Um, it was a little bit to do with what they call uh, organizational capacity. And very interestingly, if the person who ran the RCT was responsible stayed in that position, they were more likely to implement. But the main thing that they found was that it's what they call organizational inertia. So they found that if the communication program was already in the budget of the government, then doing a little tweak on this, you know, uh, was they were likely to adopt it. But if it called for a new communication program, even if it's a costless, even if you say it's digital, let's just run. So it wasn't about the cost of a program. It's just about we have to run this new thing that the adoption fell dramatically. And so, you know, we don't often think when we're running interventions, whether the organization's already doing this, whether this is a tweak to an existing advertising that they're doing or this is new advertising. We are like, well, if it's digital, it might be zero cost, but actually it isn't zero cost. And so I think as behavior scientists, we've got to apply our own science to organizations and say, like, what are the bottlenecks that are keeping organizations uh, from, you know, from actually uh, implementing these um, these these sort of things. And that's something I'm fascinated by. 
Are there some bottlenecks that you see consistently? So one is, so I think this, this idea of sort of, I mean, you know, using the sort of East framework, making it easy, right? And this idea that, uh, and the status quo bias is so high. So this yeah. idea that, um, and, and I, I said this now a hundred times, maybe this is one of the things I will be like, I said this a hundred times, but, um, <laughs> So my favorite stories when I was at Pepsi and trying to sort of set up this, you know, oh, like we should set up a nudge unit, whatever, um, and talking to a, a VP about it, a vice president, and she listened carefully and she's like, great. So where is it in the strategic planning, uh, in the strat plan? And I was like, oh, what strat plan? And she said, like, is it in the annual budget? And I'm like, um, no, it's, it's a great idea. You know, I'm sure we'll find money. And she's like, look, if it's not there, it's going to be really hard because every initiative that the company wants to do is there. And you can't just suddenly come out of nowhere. Where are you going to find the money, the resources, the people, etc.? Taught me a huge lesson. Like, if you want to be good behavioral scientists, we have to actually be good budget and planning people. And we've got to actually yes. like, so I think that's my, my big like lesson. You've got to actually spend as much time understanding the organization. I mean, really understand their planning and budgeting process. If you want to implement something uh, in the organization, I think that's definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I I couldn't agree with you more. Actually, Tim and I were just at a conference in England uh, with the Diversify uh, uh, Network as well as the CDO group, and one of the things that we talked about there, which really ties into what you were just saying, is. You can have the best behavioral interventions in the world, but you have to fit it into the organization in a way that the organization is willing to accept it. And that comes down to understanding the strategy, understanding the budget. How do you get something funded within an organization? You can have a nudge unit, but if you're not going to be able to get the budget to implement these at anything larger than that, you're, you're, you're going to fail to begin with, right? And I think that is a big piece that many of of us, right, us behavioral scientists, when we think about this, it's like, well, if the research shows that it works, then it should just, we should be able to implement have, it. But that's not how it works. Yeah, we have like system two thinking too, like behavioral science. The other, you asked me about, so that's one. The other one is social proof. You know, we actually really uh, underestimate how much people will adopt something if they see other people in the organization adopting something. And uh, and I've seen this time and time again. So you go, you tell people about behavior science, they love it, they love the stories, and they're like, great, and now I'm going to go back to my regular work. And you're like, well, what happened there? So it's I find it much more effective to just start uh, with whoever's willing to start an experiment or set of experiments with you. This has happened, you know, in my private sector work. This happened when I was founding the Center for Social and Behavior Change you can't persuade people of things that don't exist yet. So you start and then you run through everything and then you actually say, well, they adopted it, you know, and then everyone sort of jumps on the bandwagon. So I wish there were more research into how social proof works within organizations to adopt behavior change or, or to adopt these kinds of interventions. Uh, are you more likely to adopt something if somebody more high profile in the business unit adopts it? You know, the big business unit, if North America did that, or are you more likely to adopt something if lots of people have done it before? Like, what is it that really drives that? I'd love to see more work on that. Um, you know, but that's something I think was actually, uh, so obviously making it easy, but also making sure it's an existing, you know, dealing with status quo bias and then this idea of social proof. Um, I think a couple of those 
It's funny. It's all behavior science. <laughs> it's it's all behavior yeah. science, isn't it? I mean, pretty much everything is, right? <laughs> you frame it well. You you know, you frame it in a particular way. You like social proof. You know, it's it's all of that. So we talked a little bit about uh, about about scaling. Uh, what's what's next? What 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 is next on your what 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 are the, what are the wicked problems that you're hoping to solve? So the wicked problem, first of all, is I think uh, how do we scale more uh, effectively? And and there's this other sort of uh, you know really interesting paper I was reading which said that um, obviously the characteristics of an intervention and the context in which that intervention we know this, but she's actually quantified it to show that, uh, you know, that's a big part of, of the kind of the treatment effect heterogeneity, the, the fact that effects are different from one study to the other. Yeah. So I think I'd love to, the, these two challenges, how do you adopt more uh, successful interventions? That's one. But the second one is this, how do you scale an intervention? So one thing in my world, the development world, is she shows that when NGOs and academics run a study, the effect size are much higher than when governments or, you know, other parties run that, right? And yet so many of our pilots, and I think that's true even of the work um, with the nudge units, they found that, you know, the initial studies had much higher effect sizes than when the studies were scaled. Uh, and yet think about how many of what we preach is essentially studies run by academics who yeah. control everything. And we say, well, they got a 30 percentage point or, you know, 10 percentage point uptake, and we don't actually say, well, you might get a two percentage point uptake because people would find that very demotivating. <laughs> but that's something we need to think about. So I think um, I'm very excited, actually, with a partnership that we are starting with BRAC. So BRAC is the world's, you know, by some measures, one at least definitely one of the world's largest NGOs. They've been amazingly successful in Bangladesh uh, with doing things as simple as getting oral rehydration uh, solutions to combat diarrhea. It's really simple, right? It's salt and sugar, um, and you have to tell mothers and parents and caregivers about this. And most people do the reverse when their kids have diarrhea. They they prevent them from fluids because diarrhea is a fluid. You want to prevent diarrhea, so you don't give them the solution. The solution is actually just taking water, salt, and sugar. It works really well. Um, and they did a fabulous job in making this available and really uh, were instrumental in a lot of, you know, Bangladesh's public health has been pretty spectacular over the years uh, in terms of their improvements and BRAC is a big part of it. So one thing is, you know, what I'm excited about is we're working with them to say, you folks know how to implement things well. You're great at implementing at scale. We have all this sort of thinking that we have about the complexity, the scale. Let's put that together and sort of evaluate some of these large scale programs and, you know, lessons for the world. So I'm excited because also they're an organization based in the global south in Bangladesh. So I think it will also be lessons from, you know, the, where most of the world lives, not the other half, actually, ATM, <laughs> to maybe, you know, North America. So I'm excited about partnerships like those where we actually tackle these wicked problems uh, of, you know, how do you how do you get behavior science and general policy interventions to scale? That's cool. I love this idea of, of sort of relying on on people who already have this expertise. You know, I mean, you, it, let's have a bigger table, you know, let it, not to the point that it weighs down decision making or, or execution. Right. But but bring in the people who can actually get things done. That That's a very cool. The challenge is how do you work with large, sophisticated organizations and then push the conversation. Right. It's really easy to say, 
I did this one sort of, well, not easy, but it's relatively easier to say, I did this randomized control trial. It's great. Everyone should do it. It's much harder to then, to then actually implement it in the organization. Yeah. And so how do you do that? And what do you do? And I think it's, uh, you can't do it with one-off partnerships because if it doesn't work, it's seen as a failure. I think you have to have that mm. like a, a long marriage that you have and there's lots of, you know, things that don't work and then one thing really works and you're like, wow, it was worth it. <laughs> I'm not sure my poor husband would like me to describe our marriage. <laughs> I love it though. I, I, so but, uh, I, that's a really interesting concept. You're there, you're committed, commitment device, right? You're, you're there, you can't take. Well, but even just the, the, what you talked about earlier in the idea that those policymakers that stayed in that position, it was more likely to get some of those things in there. This idea of having a long, long term element to this, because as you said, if it fails, then it's a failure and I'm looking bad. But no, this is one piece of information as we're moving forward in a long term effort to move these things forward. And I think oftentimes, at least in the work that I've done with with organizations, it is that exact same thing. And if you get brought in for one intervention, one piece of work, right, you are on this, uh, you're, you're put up in the spotlight and everybody's eyes are on you. And, you know, as you said, it can work really well in a randomized control trial, but then you start implementing it larger and that 10% improvement that you, you promised now becomes one or two and they don't see that result or even maybe not at all. And therefore you get kind of blacklisted on that thing. And so it really it's looking at these and saying, how can we make sure that this partnership is going to last longer than just this one? Because that's where the power comes in, right? We learn given the context of, of whatever the organization or the, the system that we're working and, in. And I think, you know, we really need new organizations and new ways of thinking around this. So your classic sort of consulting firm, and I've worked in consulting firms, I mean, their model isn't isn't always set up for this, right? With good reason. Mm. You come in, you do a three-month project, you have to staff people, and then you have to go out. Yeah. I think they're great to demonstrate a proof of concept or to do something that you've never done before. I mean, we used, when I was at the Center for Social and Behavior Change, we had no idea how to, like, run these interventions. So I did a bit of Googling and found out that the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics was doing something similar in Kenya, right? So we called them over to say, can you help us with this? And sure enough, you know, they did, they had some, they, they really helped us to get some of those experiments off the ground. So I do think you need expertise to, like, you have to buy things initially just to, to get it started. But I think we have to think about those cracks and those sorts of who's going to be the translator for this work, right? Who's going to be that bridge builder? Um, you know, when do you actually, and, and I think we have to start to think about the behavior science ecosystem as comprising more than we're either academics uh, who are going to do some cool stuff for data or we're consulting firms who are going to come in for three months. Uh, we've got to think about like who fills in these cracks and gets this scaffolding so that organizations can actually have those long-term partnerships. Who's going to be the one to say, it's okay, like this is, a, I've seen this failure before, um, you know, yeah. wait, it'll get better. Because there's, there's the incentives aren't set up for either the organization or say for the consulting firm or the, the academic to come in and have that conversation unless a ton of trust is built up. So that's something for us to think about, I think. 
Oh, yeah, amen. Uh, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. I absolutely love that. It's difficult. There's not funding for it. It's not seen as the. No. The, it's not seen as the, the. Unfortunately, these long-term things are never seen as the the thing because you can't actually. And we have to think about what measure we use to. We, we talk about measuring stuff, right? So, what measure would we use to say that that's a good investment? Um, but that's yeah, yeah. that would be interesting. Well, and I always find it interesting too that the the measurement often. In, in, again, in the pilot, you can do it, you know, again, easier, right? You can measure certain things, but in the, once you get into that larger, you know, trying to, to scale it up, the measurements often fall down to what is easy to measure as opposed to what is there, you know, what you're really trying yeah. to get at because you, it's just very difficult in order to get some of those other measurements. And so uh, you find that all the time and you're going, organizations can't necessarily look at how effective something is if you're not measuring the right Yeah, and, and that's why I'm so excited about Y-Rise because I think, um, and now we're talking way beyond my methodological capabilities, but I think that is the problem we recognize. So running an RCT requires or randomized control trial requires a specific set of skills, but they're tractable. I mean, you, you know, they're there. There are a certain set of skills. Once you start to say, well, how do we measure, you know, welfare effects of, you know, people leaving villages, Suddenly yes. you're like, oh, okay, maybe, you know, it's not just this. Let's try and call in some other method. Sometimes there are things you can't ask people, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. what sort of data would you require to see these patterns and how do you interpret that? So I think, but it's much harder. So it's much easier yeah. to do things within a certain methodological track than I think it is to get, uh, you know, the, the interdisciplinary problem all the time. So while I have uh, a lot of hope, it's also much harder. It always looks insurmountable in, in the short run. But I think we're trying to do exactly that, to say let's go beyond what is measurable in a particular RCT and actually try and look at other sources of data and see whether we can sort of make some good estimates uh, as experts to give you a sense of what, you know, whether this thing will scale well or not, or what those effects might be at scale. You've got this 30% effect here. What might that look right. like at scale so that you can then decide as a policymaker whether you want to sort of invest those resources or direct them elsewhere. Well, it may be impossible for me in the short term to even conceive of persuading you that uh, the pastoral symphony is a better piece of music than Beethoven's <laughs> Night. But... I like the fireworks. What can I say? I'm not for the subtle. <laughs> okay, that might have been a little heavy-handed, but uh, but we would like to just... We're kind of curious about what music would you take to a desert island with you? If you if you just had a year on a desert island, assuming that this would all be wonderful, uh, and you only had two musical artists to take with you, what what would be the two... Artists, you could take their their entire catalog. Um, well, so I'll, I'll caveat this by saying my musical tastes are extremely crazy because uh, they. So I learned piano, and uh, that's why I I sort of am. But in piano, as I've now discovered, I have vast gaps in my repertoire. So my piano teacher will say, "Oh, like this is well known piece. I'm like never heard of it." So. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, but but consistently, I mean, if you're to ask me one composer, all my friends and family know it is Beethoven. My my husband actually made me this lovely artwork about Beethoven as a Christmas present because he, oh my God, <laughs> that's you know, so that's the one, that's wow. the one sort of uh, uh, 
competitor to his affection i think so, <laughs> wow wow they got me good old ludwig and then i'm not sure about the other then i have i think some bollywood music uh, i'm oh, not sure wow. about the like composer but i think i would i would have like a, a whole whole lot of bollywood music maybe um rd burman is an older composer that i love and again large gaps but uh, with listening to a lot of that so two different kinds of music i think there's the nice there's the classical full of emotion and there's the fun sort of bollywood well there's emotion in and all that fun too oh, tons of yeah, yeah yeah all that all that bollywood <laughs> stuff with all of its sparkle and you know pizzazz is plenty emotional it's just yeah. maybe not quite as deep as a beethoven piano concerto but yeah yeah that Yeah, a lot of people would disagree with that. <laughs> That's <laughs> possible. What do you mean? I mean, these are just notes. That is music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Said, Neela, <laughs> it is such a pleasure having you as a guest on Behavioral Grooves. We hope you'll come back. Uh, but thank you for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. Welcome to a grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned with our discussion with Neela, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our scaling brains. Scaling. It sounds Notice like we have scales. Like there's, a, there's a kind of... What, yeah, what is, what's yeah, that called it. when it has two meanings? What's that? Uh, a double entendre. A double yeah. entendre with that, yes. Yeah, yeah. Your yes. brain and my brain, we're, 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 we have scaling brains. There we go. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Meaning like we're, <laughs> Interpret it yeah. how you will. <laughs> So, uh, so we both we had a great conversation with Neela Kurt. What what did you come away with? What was what was salient for you in this conversation? That it's not enough to do good work. That you have to talk and think about how to implement that further. And the idea of how do you take something that is small and bring it up to scale? If that's indeed what you're trying to do, I mean. It's great that we can go in there and we can do a pilot or we can do an experiment or we can do a small little survey and study and show, wow, we are bringing some really amazing insights and um, performance improvements with what we're doing. But then we need to be able to, to take that small intervention and ensure that it is going to have the same or at least good impact at a larger scale. Well, and how much did this remind you of our conversation with John List? Oh, my you know, gosh. The, the, yeah. the great economist who whose book, The Voltage Effect, was just fantastic. Yeah. Where he really actually got into the nitty gritty of defining the steps that we need to go through when we're thinking about moving from, you know, this an idea that we think is really great to have on a large scale, but actually moving it to large scale to scalability is a totally different story. And and I. I Of course, I mean, we had a great conversation with John, but, but yeah, I think well, Neela's, and Neela, like, Neela was like saying, go out and read that book as part of the, yeah. the conversation that we had with her. Yeah, that it was it was really interesting to me to see the overlap because there is there's there's a lot yeah. of the work that Neela's doing and the work that John is doing on, on this. I think they they pair really nice together. And it's really interesting because when you think about scaling, as Neela was talking about, You know, there are a lot of a lot of these issues that we don't always take into consideration, like costs. She was talking about, well, you do the, the small intervention and it's a one on one counseling type thing. Well, 
can you do one-on-one once it starts getting up above, you know, a few 50 to 100 people? Maybe right. not. You're thousands and tens of thousands. That might just be cost prohibitive. There are a number of other elements that, you know, the cost compares into. Does the effect not hold? Does that does this change because now we've taught people something and because now we've taught the vast mass of people something, the mm-hmm. impact, the uh, effectiveness of it is changed because they have a different viewpoint. And so what we're trying to do with them doesn't work. All of those things are, are there. The focus, the amount of attention that things get at scale versus at, at smaller piece. Is it just one more program with the myriad of, of exactly. tens and twenties and thirty other programs that are going on and people are just going to go, Oh, ho hum, here it is. It doesn't have that, you know, definitive focus. So I think all of those things need to be thought about. And this isn't just, you know, Neela's working a lot with like big governmental components and various different, yeah. you know, policy NGOs, pieces, NGOs. Yeah. Yeah. But this yeah. happens in, you know, an organization like yours, an organization, a mid-sized organization, even small organizations. And this is this gets back to one of the reasons why I've been a fan of Neela's work for several years is that she is so ardently committed to the nonprofit sector. Yeah. She's really interested in policy intervention. And I mean, the work is inspirational, but it also reminds me that it just as, as you said this, and I'm, I'm just reemphasizing something that you just said, Kurt, but the problems in for-profit and non-for-profit are equally as big in, yeah. when it comes to scaling these things. Yeah. And um, so I think that what, what she has, um, you know, what, what she brings to the table is just really important. Well, and one of the things she said, and I'm going to quote this, it's uh, she said, in the public sector, as I said, you know, you start to scale something and there are all sorts of unintended consequences, unquote. It's that, that I mean, those unintended consequences, yeah, they happen in the public sector. They happen in the private sector as well. Absolutely. All the time. I mean, this is what That's I right. deal with on a day-to-day basis when we're working with these clients and particularly around their incentive programs and a variety of other things. They put an incentive program in and then they go, well, why isn't the behavior changing like we thought it would? Or, or actually maybe sometimes opposite the way we intended it to. And I'm going, because you didn't take into effect some of these other unintended consequences of how people are interpreting these right. in various different aspects. Yeah, or just, just what it does in the world. Uh, I, how about how about the idea of choosing early on in the, in the development of the automobile to not continue to invest in elect, electric engines, but to invest in mm-hmm. gas engines, gasoline. And, you know, here we are 100 years down the road and there's real problems. No way that could have been anticipated in, in the early days. No way. No. Who, who, would have, who would have known? And yet here we are. So uh, so when the, when we can anticipate things that can go awry, I think we need to do that. Something else that that she talked about was about budgets. And this struck me particularly importantly, because here I am in a new role uh, in a in a company who is who is, you know, made a pretty big commitment to make behavioral science part of their thing, you've got to have a budget for it. You have to say, this is where we stand. I mean, you and I were in London, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, talking to practitioners in their behavioral science roles in their companies. And man, if, if there's no budget, shit doesn't happen. It just, <laughs> it just doesn't. And so, so uh, you know, it takes leadership Standing up and saying, we're going to have to have a budget to get things done. We're going to have to have a, if we want a behavioral science lens, there's a, there's a cost to it. And it's going to be difficult to measure the specific 
uh, ROI on, on, on some of that work too. And I think the important piece there is this idea that if we really want to be effective as behavioral scientists, so for the behavioral scientists that are listening in, in the audience, we have to become better business people, particularly if we're working yeah. with organizations. We have to be able to understand a budget planning process. We have to understand the yep. how, how to, all right, if we can't get an exact ROI, how can we estimate the ROI? What are some of the other ways that we can measure the impact that we have in order to demonstrate this to, again, go and fight for that budget? Because budgets are, you know, within an organization, they don't just go, hey, here you go, take some more money, give it up. You know, they're going to be fighting for that that money because other departments, other divisions are going to be looking for that as well. And Absolutely. if they have a better argument, if they have better data to support them, uh, that is putting your budget at risk. And as you said, without a budget, nothing happens. Yeah. So once the behavioral scientists within the organizations learn to speak the language of the the business leadership, then if we can get to a point where we can demonstrate some kind of an ROI, some kind of a return on investment, then we move away from just the budget users to budget makers. Mm. And if we can move into a budget making mode, then we we move away from HR that is, you know, that never really figured out. And you and I have had this conversation offline. Oh, but my gosh. HR never really figured out how to get a seat at the table because they couldn't really demonstrate what the investment in human capital really means to the organization. I think we might be getting closer to that these days, but but I, but I think that there's a risk that um, practitioners of behavioral science face if we don't move from just budget takers to to budget makers. I love that. I also one of the things that uh, Neela said was that as behavioral scientists, that we are not thinking hard enough about how to change behavior for behavior science, and so this I think is <laughs> yeah. the other piece yeah. of this that I'm yeah. like going. We, we we hold the lens to everybody else, but we need to hold that lens to ourselves as well. Yes. And yes. that, I think, was just uh, when when she said that, it was like, oh, it hurts to hear that. But yeah, it, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Well, and, and I was so grateful to have that conversation with her because shortly after that, I found myself in a meeting with somebody saying, well, we want to do this marketing material and then we're going to learn about the customer in, in this particular platform and we want to market to them on this other platform. Is that going to be cool or is that going to be creepy? And I thought, well, here's an opportunity to actually look at something that could that could be studied and then contribute to the body of work in behavioral science, that we might learn something about the human condition in, in, in a way. And uh, I, I'd have to give a shout out to Neela for you know, helping see that. So just, just, I'm just grateful for that. She, she, she broadened my lens. Anyway. There you go. Well, cool. Cool. Well, I think that probably what wraps this episode up. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. It was such a great conversation. And thanks to Neela for, I think we tried to schedule this for nine or 10 months. So, <laughs> so thanks for her. Thanks to her for doing that. And, and thanks for providing such insights that we can all use. It was just fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And as you said, you've already tried. I mean, some of these insights you've already tried out. Are you super excited to even try more of these within the company? Yeah. Damn right I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm super excited. You know, I want to imp- implement the, these concepts because I could just see all of Neela's comments like playing out in the world that I live in. Yeah, it's 
great. And, and listeners, you too should go out this week and see how you can scale the groove in your life.